0: Tonight I'd like to explore the third noble truth of the Buddhist teachings which is the end of suffering the end of dukkha (coughs) so this (coughs) this is from the sutta and this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha the remainderless fading and cessation renunciation relinquishment and letting go of craving So that's a pretty clear and unambiguous statement. (coughs) The end of dukkha is the fading, cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, and letting go of craving. (coughs) But is it possible to even imagine that kind of mind? You know, a mind that's free of craving, free of wanting. It's probably easier for us to resonate (coughs) with that famous prayer of St. Augustine. He said, Dear Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. (coughs) So let me be free of craving, but not quite yet. (laughs) So how do we relate to this (coughs) third noble truth? On retreat a few years ago, I was reflecting on some of the Buddha's words and actually as part of his verse of enlightenment, you know, the time of his awakening. He said, realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. So that's how he announced his awakening, his enlightenment. Achieved is the unconditioned, realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. So while on retreat, I began (coughs) reflecting on this statement and began to understand it in a somewhat new and different way. So rather than understanding the end of craving as being some far-off goal in the distant future, you know, well, we practice hard, and maybe after 20 or 30 years or lifetimes, we'll come to the end of craving. And rather than think of it as some special state, maybe meditative state, that we would want to hold on to, I began to understand the end of craving as being the practice right now in each moment. In each moment we can be practicing it. <clears throat> and when we explore The end of craving in this way, in our momentary experience, we can see for ourselves how craving obscures the mind. You know, it clouds our way of seeing, it obscures the natural ease of our way of being. And how, in moments free of desire, and we all have them, if we're paying attention. We're really paying attention to those moments that are free of desire and clinging, we can recognize in those moments a certain quality of happiness and of peace. <coughs> there are so many examples of this, you know, but just one uh, that struck me very noticeably, and this, this happened quite a few years ago. I was visiting New York City and I was walking down, I don't know, it was Fifth Avenue or Madison Avenue. You know, looking at <coughs> in the shop windows and all this great stuff. And as I was walking, I was just kind of, you know, window shopping. <laughs> you know, and kind of looking, looking, looking. And then some weeks later, I happened to be in New York again on the same street. And for some reason, my mind was not wanting at that time. I was just walking down the street seeing. And it struck me because I remembered how I'd been just a few weeks before with that kind of subtle, oh, that's nice, that's, oh, that would be nice to have. <laughs> the difference between that mind state and the peace of not wanting, of not craving. You know, the contrast was so noticeable. So as a very simple experiment, you know, in your own practice, the next time you become aware that there's a wanting, a desire, a craving in the mind, For anything, it can be a big thing, it can be a little thing. Notice what that feels like. What does it feel like when there's that wanting, when there's that craving? And also notice what it feels like when the wanting or craving comes to an end. And it always does. You know, desire and craving like everything else arises and passes away. (coughs) Pay attention to that moment of transition, because we can see so clearly for ourselves the experience of this third noble truth, even if it's just for a moment. Now we can see the peace of coming to the end of craving, and we can feel it. We really know it for ourselves. So Tuku who was a great Dzogchen master, Tibetan Dzogchen master of the last century, <coughs> he would often uh, teach his students in terms of recognizing what in that tradition is called the nature of mind or the nature of awareness. He would teach people to practice recognizing that <coughs> for short moments many times. And that's really a good instruction short moments, many times. You know, if we have this idea that we want to achieve the end of craving and just have it last forever, (coughs) that may take another three-month course. (laughs) But we (laughs) we can really practice and experience the end of craving right now short moments, but many times during the day. So I really recommend this as a practice because it reveals something to us. Instead of this third noble truth being theoretical, we actually have the taste of that freedom. (coughs) Although there are (coughs) many different methodologies, vocabularies, metaphysical systems, even, in the different Buddhist traditions, they all agree on what it is that frees the mind. So there are a lot of differences in the traditions. And sometimes even conflicting descriptions of things. But there is agreement about the nature of what causes suffering and the end of suffering. And it's expressed in different ways, the essence of which is liberation through non-clinging. So everything we're doing in the practice is in the service of this freedom. All the tools you may be using, they're all in the service of freeing the mind from clinging, from craving, from clinging, from grasping. (coughs) This, this particular phrase, liberation through non-clinging, is found <coughs> throughout the Pali discourses. And it's also found in many of the teachings, you know, of the great Tibetan masters or Zen masters. There was a very famous uh, Tibetan master, his name was Patral Rinpoche. And he lived in Eastern Tibet and he just used to wander around as a vagabond and around the countryside, and it said that he was tremendous, tremendously beloved by the very simple people. <clears throat> he was known as the enlightened vagabond. And he had some very useful words to say about exactly this, about not clinging. And it's in a teaching which he called, Advice from Me to Myself. Okay, so this is Patro Rinpoche's advice to himself. Listen up, old bad karma, patrol, <laughs> You dweller in distraction. For ages now, you've been beguiled, entranced, and fooled by appearances. Are you aware of that? Are you? Right this very instant, when you're under the spell of mistaken perception, you've got to watch out. Don't let yourself get carried away by this fake and empty life. (coughs) Your mind is spinning around, spinning around, carrying out a lot of useless projects. It's a waste. Give it up. Thinking about the hundred plans you want to accomplish with never enough time to finish them just weighs down your mind. You're completely distracted by all these projects which never come to an end. It keep spreading out more and more like ripples in water. <coughs> Don't be a fool, just sit tight. All this Dharma practice equipment that seems so attractive, <coughs> forget about it. If you let go of everything, 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 that's the real point. Very simple instruction. <coughs> if you let go of everything, everything, everything. <coughs> that's the real point. So the question for us, the message is clear. This, it's not a mysterious message, you know, of coming to the end of dukkha. The relinquishment of craving. Liberation through non-clinging. Letting go of grasping. The question is, how can we actually practice this? How can we experience it, you know, in our own practice, first on a moment-to-moment level? How can we practice the letting go of clinging, the letting go of craving, on a moment-to-moment level? And then, in the end, the final relinquishment of all craving. So we can practice this and we can accomplish it (coughs) in many different ways. There are different methods and different Buddhist traditions and teachings highlight one or another of these methods. One that's very familiar to us and that you've been practicing (coughs) over all these weeks we begin to decondition clinging and grasping and craving through an increasingly refined perception and awareness of the three characteristics. Now, we've spoken a lot about this. The more clearly we see the impermanence of our experience, (coughs) the more we're seeing it, not theoretically, but actually noticing that everything is just a flow of phenomena, the more we know intuitively and directly the unreliability of phenomena, which is the basic meaning of dukkha. It's unreliable. Why? Because it doesn't last. So we, we know this experientially. Through the seeing of impermanence, we intuit the unreliability, the basically unsatisfying nature. Not that things may not be pleasant, they are often, but they're unreliable, because they change. And in seeing this, we also know for ourselves that when we hold on, when we're attached, when we grasp at that which in its nature will change, we suffer. Do you have any doubts about that yet? You know, because it's such an, it's such an obvious but often overlooked truth. It's not, it's not hard to understand that if something is changing, you know, and we're trying to hold on. Somebody once said, <laughs> suffering through attachment is like rope burn. You know, if you're trying to hold on a rope that's being pulled through your hand, you try to hold on but it's being pulled through, what happens? And then we get rope burn. We can see this very clearly, and pr- perhaps most noticeably, when we uh, experience attachment to our bodies staying a certain way. You know, if we are holding on to some notion of our bodies staying young, healthy, strong full of hair. (laughs) It's unfortunate. (laughs) But it just doesn't stay, the body, as we all know. And we've said it so many times here. And what's so interesting to me is that something that is so obvious we need to hear so many times. You know, because this attachment and the clinging is so hardwired, which is why it takes seeing it again and again and again, <coughs> seeing the changing nature. That's what begins to decondition the grasping and clinging in the mind. And through this, <coughs> through seeing the impermanence and the unreliability, and watching this process, we see more and more directly the impersonal nature of this whole process. There's no one behind it to whom it's happening. You could say what what we call self is the changing process. It's not that the the process is happening to someone. (laughs) We begin to see that nothing lasts long enough to be called self. And yet, as we all know, there is some felt experience of self. You know, we go through the world and interacting as if there's one. So somebody asked, you know, a Tibetan teacher about this. (coughs) Just, you know, saying, based on this felt experience we all have, you know, is the self real? And the Tibetan teacher says, yes, it's real, but not really real. (laughs) You exaggerate it, you know, and we do. So it is real, there is a felt sense, and we operate in this conventional relative world of self and other. And that's all fine, that's how we're operating. But we want to also understand the deeper level To see that it's not really real, because we could call it like in in somewhat scientific terms, we could call the self an emergent property. You know, that doesn't exist in the elements coming together themselves. It's like you know, hydrogen and oxygen creates water. So water is an emergent property. It's not in the hydrogen, it's not in the oxygen. But put them together, something emerges. So we could say you put the five aggregates together in a certain way and there's a sense of self which emerges and that's our conventional understanding. But it's important to see that this emergent property is not something in and of itself. And when we look at the constituent elements which give rise to it, we see that each one of them is in constant flux and change, and that's where the inherent instability lies. So in seeing these three characteristics over and over again, you know, just this mind-body process, there's a teaching in the sutta, there's a kind of sequence, which uh, is very pointed. In seeing the three characteristics one grows disenchanted with the five aggregates. You know, because we're actually seeing that what we're calling self is really just a combination of the aggregates and flux, we're seeing the impermanence of it, we become disenchanted. Disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate, and through dispassion, one is released. So it's helpful to understand the word disenchantment Because in conventional mm, conversation, disenchantment may have a kind of negativity to it. Oh, somebody's disenchanted. You know, it kind of is a bit of a downer. But really, when you look at the word disenchantment, it really means waking up from the spell of enchantment. You know, it's like the happy ending of a lot of fairy tales. You know, someone is put under the spell, is enchanted, and then at the end, they wake up into a fuller, into a deeper reality. So notice what it's like, and I'm sure you have noticed this many, many times over these weeks. What is it like to be lost in some mind drama? You know, which can be light, it can be heavy, it can be intense. (coughs) and then, at some point, awaken to the fact that it was just thoughts in the mind. We've been under the spell, we've been enchanted. And then something wakes us up. It's like coming out of a movie. So on a recent retreat, I had one interesting experience. I was doing walking meditation. I may have talked about this in the Q and A. I'm not sure about uh, really watching the light thoughts go through the mind—very light ones, not disturbing ones—and how it reminded me of that moment. You know, in the morning when we wake up, you might wake up and then just slip back into a dream for a moment or two, or a little longer, and then wake up again. Are you familiar with that? You know, so. We're asleep, then we awake, and then back into the dream for a moment. When I was doing the walking meditation, I began to notice these very light thoughts. They weren't disturbing, they weren't big, they weren't no big drama, but they were hardly noticeable because they weren't disturbing. But as I began to notice them, just a, a quickly passing one, I noticed that a lot of these thoughts were self-referential in one way or another. You know, a plan, a memory, a want, whatever. And I noticed that the experience in those moments of being lost in that thought, even though it was a short time, was exactly like going back into the dream state after being awake. It was the same experience. And so I began to say to myself, this became like a little mantra, I'm just dreaming myself into existence. You know, because all of these thoughts, even though they weren't big and dramatic, they were building an inner environment. You know, they came just a moment, but there, was, there were and are so many. If they're unnoticed, we're continually reinforcing that felt sense of self. We are dreaming ourselves into existence. And so as I used that phrase, I would use it through the day. It's sort of like Patrull speaking (laughs) to himself. Old, bad, karma Joseph, (laughs) (laughs) pay attention, (laughs) you know. And it was interesting, it really motivated me to stay more awake to these very quickly passing thoughts and it created a whole different level of wakefulness, of mindfulness. It's through attention to the three characteristics that leads to disenchantment. It leads to waking up, to freedom. So when we understand that this is what we're doing, that we're paying attention to these characteristics as a way of waking up, When we understand our practice in this way, it really enlarges the context of our understanding of what we're doing. You know, because so often in meditation, we get so enmeshed in some kind of assessment or other of the content of our experience, you know, and we're caught, it's either pleasant or unpleasant, we like it or we don't like it, or... And none of that has anything to do with freedom. It's like what we're really practicing is to see that whatever arises and, again, I've said this so many times, (coughs) it's to see that whatever arises is also passing away. That's the insight. The content of what is arising (coughs) becomes less and less important. The freeing aspect is seeing its changing nature. So as we do this, <clears throat> the experience of seeing the flow of change begins to gather momentum. And this really leads us onward in the practice. And as you know, you've experienced probably over these weeks, sometimes as we get into the flow of change, sometimes it's exhilarating. You know, there's a huge, interested, almost excited energy And sometimes the flow of of change is fearful, you know, and can even cause some anxiety. But we go through these different terrains, and in in interviews I've spoken with some of you about how I often imagine or feel the practice is just a journey through terrains, and sometimes you're in the beautiful mountains, and sometimes you're in the desert, and sometimes you're in the mosquito-infested jungle, and (laughs) sometimes you're in Hawaii, and... And the journey just wends its way through these different terrains of our experience. If we keep walking, you know, with some attentiveness to the characteristics, to the flow of change, the practice leads onward (coughs) to what Annie talked about the other night, to a place of profound equanimity. And at this place in our practice, as that quality of equanimity gets strong, all the factors of awakening, the factors of enlightenment, it's the field for their ripening. It's the field for their maturing. The practice is going on in quite an effortless way at that time. And in this place of equanimity, the craving is greatly diminished because the feeling tone associated with equanimity at this stage, the feeling tone is neutral. And what's so interesting is that we actually find neutral feeling to be more satisfying than pleasant feeling. It's more refined, it's more peaceful. So that itself is kind of an interesting discovery. (coughs) (coughs) because we're so addicted to the pleasant. And yet there's a more refined kind of happiness. So in this state of equanimity, where things are rolling on by themselves, uh, it's really a state of great imperturbability. I want to read something from Ajahn Jamnayan, a Thai meditation master. He said, at some point the mind becomes so clear and balanced that whatever arises is seen and left untouched with no interference. Got that? <laughs> That's all you have to know. Become so clear and balanced that whatever arises is seen and left untouched with no interference. It's just seen. One ceases to focus on any particular content. And all is seen as simply mind and matter, an empty process arising and passing away of its own. A perfect balance of mind with no reactions. There is no longer any doing. You know, and so the momentum of our practice is leading to this place. We're strengthening the mindfulness and the factors of awakening and this powerful factor of equanimity until it's all rolling along by itself. (coughs) Sometimes, all objects of awareness seem to disappear, and all that's left is consciousness, all that's left is knowing. So at this point, a very great care is needed because there can be a very subtle or not so subtle attachment to this state. Becomes an identification, with consciousness itself so this becomes a very interesting place of investigation it's very easy to make a home of awareness and to have a sense of self settle right into that so this a lot of delicacy is needed here (laughs) So, Andrew Olensky, who's a Buddhist scholar, he wrote, consciousness is not a thing that exists, but an event that occurs. You know, and so it really helps us to understand consciousness is not a thing that we can identify with and call home or call self. It's a process as well. So a profound question in meditation in our lives and one that works on a <coughs> profound transformation is how can we cut through this rather pervasive and often subtle identification with consciousness, with knowing. How we, how we create the knower. Because we may have the experience quite clearly that, you know, it's all changing. The thoughts and feelings and sensations and sounds, and we really see the flow of change, but very much have the sense that I'm the one knowing it all. So how do we cut through that? (coughs) Different traditions use different methods to cut through this identification with knowing. So this is Mahasi Sayadaw's instruction. At times there is nothing to notice with the body disappearing and the sense of touch lost. However, at this moment, knowing consciousness is still apparent. In the very clear open space of the sky, that's the image he uses for the mind at this time, In the very clear, open space of the sky, there remains only one very clear, blissful consciousness, which is very clear beyond comparison and very blissful. The yogi tends to delight in such clear, blissful consciousness. But the consciousness is not going to stay permanent. It too has to be noted as knowing, knowing, knowing. And so he's just pointing to the fact that even in this very clear, open, sky-like nature of awareness, (coughs) we need to be mindful of that as well, so as not to become identified with it. (coughs) One of the great masters of the Thai forest tradition, Ajahn Mahabua, has a monastery in the northeast of Thailand, and he was reputed to be an Orhant. Uh, and he was unusual in that he wrote a description uh, of his enlightenment experience. You know, and that's it's not that usual in the literature. Uh, and he reminds us that in these very subtle realms of awareness, we need to exercise a great care. Because we might confuse these very refined states with the mind of freedom. So I just want to read a little bit about his description of his enlightenment. So he talks about going to practice at this one Wat, this temple. He said, the problem of unawareness, ignorance, had me bewildered for quite some time. At that stage, the mind was so radiant that I came to marvel at its radiance. Everything of every sort which could make me marvel seemed to have gathered there in the mind, to the point where I began to marvel at myself. Why is it that my mind is so marvelous? (laughs) Looking at the body, I couldn't see it at all. It was all space, empty. The mind was radiant in full force. Now this is the kicker. (laughs) This radiance is the ultimate counterfeit. And at that moment, it's the most conspicuous point. You hardly want to touch it at all because you love it and cherish it more than anything else. In the entire body, there is nothing more outstanding than this radiance which is why you are amazed at it, love it, cherish it, dawdle over it, want nothing to touch it. But it's the enemy king, unawareness. Look what he's talking about. He's talking about this ultimate radiance of mind as being the enemy king. But luckily, as soon as I began to marvel at myself to the point of exclaiming deludedly in the heart, without being conscious of it, why has my mind come so far? At that moment a statement of Dhamma spontaneously arose. This too I hadn't anticipated. It suddenly appeared as if someone were speaking in the heart, although there was no one speaking. It simply appeared as a statement. If there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is an agent of birth. That's what it said. If there is a point or a center (coughs) of the knower anywhere, that is an agent of birth. We're still in the realm of samsara. (coughs) So this is the critical point. As long as there's any identification with the knowing, as long as there's any sense of the knower, then we're still bound in the realm of becoming, of conventional conditioned reality. (coughs) So we want to be aware of this knowing mind. You know, and at times if that becomes predominant, we note that, we become mindful of that. In some Tibetan and Zen traditions, uh, they use other methods for cutting through this identification with consciousness, even if it's for short moments. So sometimes they suggest looking for the mind itself. Can you find your mind? Okay, so. Can you find what's knowing the sound? The knowing is there, but is there anything to find? And Tolko Ergin used to say, the not finding is the finding. Right? It's the experience that there is nothing to find, which reveals its empty selfless nature. So this is beautifully expressed in a story which I tell often and may have even mentioned during this retreat. But it, it's a wonderful Zen story of uh, Bodhidharma sitting in his cave, and <coughs> you know a student uh, seeker comes to see him. I'm not sure how to pronounce it exactly. A uh, Um <coughs> and Huike you know, suffering tremendously and once his mind eased. Very, you know, completely sincere in his quest. And at first Bodhidharma just kind of dismisses him, but Waker is insistent. So finally Bodhidharma comes out of his cave. And Vekha says, you know, my mind is so distressed. I'm so full of suffering. Please pacify it. And Bodhidharma says, show me your mind and I'll pacify it. So you have to listen carefully here because kind of the, the ending lines kind of sounds like a Zen witticism, you know, as if it's a little joke, but it's actually a profound teaching. So you want to hear it in that way. So Waika says, you know, my mind is suffering, it's in distress, please pacify it. Bodhidharma says, show me your mind and I'll pacify it. Waker says, I've looked for it everywhere, and I can find it. And Bodhidharma says, there, it's already pacified. It's right in that moment, and we can have those moments, even if it's for a short moment. You know, when we look for our mind, and often I'll be walking, you know, taking a walk, just in my daily life, and if my mind is ruminating about something or caught up in something, and it feels a little distressful, being very familiar with this, you know, little exchange, all I need to do is kind of turn back, you know, to looking at the mind and just, just the last line isn't, oh, already pacified. The mind is already pacified, you know, it's already aware. So during the course of the day, it's just an interesting, Experiment, you know, to, especially with sound, sound's a particularly easy way to do this, you know, as sound comes, can you find your mind? And then see, see what happens. So in one way or another, you know, as the equanimity matures, as we free ourselves from identification, even with awareness, even with knowing, at a certain point, the mind will intuitively, spontaneously open to the unborn, the unconditioned, to Nibbana, to the highest peace. Okay, so at this point, the, the talk is going to take a little, a uh, little new turn. <laughs> because I want to highlight two different ways of understanding how this whole path can be, un- up, up and through liberation, can be understood. And these different ways actually have an effect on how we're holding our practice and holding our experience. One of the ways, is the teaching as it's expressed in the Abhidhamma and how it's taught very often in Burma. and uh, How I learned it and many of us who practice in Burma have learned it. And the other way is taught in the discourses, you know, in the, in the suttas. And they're two quite different understandings. It's going to be a little bit of a challenge because the first part of this, <coughs> you, may find, you may find it a little theoretical and not quite sure what the point of it all is. There is a point, <laughs> and I'll be getting to it. <laughs> so just say, so, but I need to lay the foundation with a little of the theoretical understanding. See if you can just um, stay with it. So in terms of the unfolding of the path, and coming to a place of freedom, the Buddha talked, and we find this in the suttas, the Buddha talked of four pairs of noble individuals, or eight individual noble beings, and they are those who have realized either the path or the fruition of each of the stages of enlightenment. And some of you may be familiar you with know, the four classical stages of stream entry, once-returner, non-returner, or hunt. In the Theravada tradition, those are the four levels of awakening. And at each level, different defilements are uprooted. So, for example, at the level of stream entry, the defilement that is uprooted, that does not come again, is the wrong view of self. So even though we may get momentarily fooled, as Barney talked about, the distortions of perception, mind, and view, there can still be the distortion of perception. And so even at that stage, we can get caught up, you know, in a sense of self. But the view has been uprooted, the deepest aspect. Okay, and so from the path of, from stream entry on, and the reason that is talked about a lot in the suttas is it's said that full enlightenment is assured from that point. Right? It has really entered the stream. So the Pali word for path is maga, and the Pali word for fruit or fruition is pala, maga, pala. You might recognize that from the end of the chant of the precepts, Ida me si long, magapalaniyana jnana pachayoho too. You know, by the power of these precepts may it be the cause and condition for the experience of path and fruition. It's like it's a way of dedicating the merit to that end. Okay, <coughs> so far together. <laughs> right here is where these two different paths, kind of the Abhidhamma explanation and the Sutta explanation diverge. And it's a very interesting divergence. Okay, in the Abhidhamma explanation, how it is taught and how it is experienced, you know, in Burma, in the Burmese tradition, when the factors of enlightenment are all ripened and matured in this place of equanimity, the mind, as I mentioned, can open to the unconditioned, can open to the unborn, can open to nibbana, in a rapid succession of what are called path and fruition moments, magapala. These are called super-mundane consciousness, because these moments of consciousness, magapala, are taking nibbana as its object. And in this way of understanding, they happen one right after the other, successively. It is the path moment, in this way of understanding, that uproots the defilements at each stage of enlightenment. And the fruition moments are then the experience of that peace. Okay, so there's a path moment for each of the stages of enlightenment. The path moment uproots the defilements and immediately after each path moment there's the fruition which can then be repeated of experiencing the peace of Nibbana. So in this description, the two, the first pair of noble individuals really come at the same time, it's path and fruition moment They come one right after the other. Okay, so that's the Abhidhamma model. Here's where it begins to get interesting and perhaps applicable for how you understand your own practice. In the description of this liberating path a path that leads to freedom, that's found in the suttas, is quite different, or different in a significant way from what I just described. Here, the path moment and the fruition moment can be separated by a long period of time, even years. The path, the path moment, is understood not as the experience of Nibbana. Maga, the path moment, is understood to be entering the path to stream entry. And it's the fruition moment, which can happen any time after that, even years later, it's the fruition moment of having entered the path towards stream entry, It's the fruition moment that then uproots the defilement. But both those who have entered the path to stream entry and those who have experienced the fruition of it, the uprooting of the defilements, both of those are considered noble beings destined for full awakening. This, this is so this first moment, or this understanding of Magga in this way, entering the path means entering the path towards stream entry. We've en- that's the path we've entered. And it's that entering which is considered transcending the mundane, or becoming a noble one. And it's also said in the text that if we have entered the path towards stream entry, it's inevitable that one will experience its fruition sometime in this life. So in the suttas, there is no specific description of this path moment, which is interesting. You know, the path is entering the path towards stream entry. But there's no description of, you know, what that particular moment or experience is like. But there's a hint of it given in the descriptions of two kinds of people who it said have gone beyond the plane of worldlings. Okay, so it's describing two kinds of individuals who have gone beyond the worldly plane and become noble beings. So this gives a hint of what the experience of entering the path to stream entry is. So these two kinds of people are called faith followers and dhamma followers. The faith follower firmly believes that the six sense spheres, the six sense objects, the six senses are impermanent, are changing, they're always becoming other. Okay, so the faith follower has this firm belief that the six senses are in constant change. And they are convinced of these truths and have entered the plane of noble beings. So this is, to me, quite interesting. You know, because in our practice over and over again we are seeing at various levels the changing nature of the six senses. So the Dhamma followers, that's the faith followers, have this firm belief. The Dhamma followers accepts this truth of the changing nature of the six senses after seeing them. So it's not just kind of believing it. The Dhamma follower actually sees it, and reflects on it, and ponders it. In some way, it's the difference between a devotional type and a wisdom type. And so the wisdom type really will actively investigate the changing nature of the six senses. And so they too are convinced of these truths, and have entered the plane of noble beings. So what is all this saying? You know, it's kind of a big construct of actually the the arena of awakening, the arena of liberation. The first thing it's saying is that the path and fruit, magapala, can be understood and experienced in different ways. And so it's just, okay, so we have to enlarge our picture, enlarge our understanding. Second, that entering the path towards stream entry is not some far-off goal. It's not some rare and unattainable goal. The description of it was, either as a faith follower or as a Dhamma follower, those who become firmly convinced, who see so clearly the changing nature of the six senses. So what have you been doing, you know, for all of these weeks except the seeing of that? You You have been immersed in this. So you can reflect on your own experience and how certainly you know this for yourself. What's the degree of certainty you have of the changing nature of the six senses? And over time, having reflected on this and seen this and seeing if there's real certainty about it We begin to feel this unwavering commitment to the dharma and it's understood as having entered the path to stream entry, assured of experiencing the uprooting of the defilements. And this in the end is what our practice is all about. This is the measure of our practice, it's not about particular experiences, it's about whether the mind has been and is being purified of those forces which cause suffering, bringing us to the experience of that third noble truth, the end of suffering. So I just appreciate this model, and it's recent, only recently that I came to understand that I was so immersed in the first model, you know, of aiming for that kind of Big Bang experience. <laughs> and, but just coming to understand this sutta model, which is coming right out of the discourses of the Buddha, you know, it feels like it, it makes our understanding of the path of liberation and the experience much more immediate, you know, and much more pragmatic because we all have this insight you have been paying attention to the changing nature of the Six Senses. And as that deepens, and as you become firmly convinced of the truth of it, then we can appreciate the possibility of having entered the path, entered the path to stream entry, entered the path to the assurance of awakening. Let's just sit for a few moments. Uh, tomorrow morning at the 815 sitting there's going to be a guided meditation you're all invited